story about a husband and wife. They start attending a church. They, they, they're arriving to this new church weary. Okay, they're, they're looking for a fresh reviving. Both of them are leaders in, in their separate professions. They both were heavily involved in their former church. And they were looking to be revived. They needed to be revived. And here's what happened as they started to get plugged in. In multiple conversations, several different men in the church, they seemed threatened by this woman. Whenever she would express her opinion, whenever she would refer to her education, whenever she would talk about her career, several different men seemed to be threatened by her. Simple conversations left her feeling like she just had a sparring match, not like they were mutually respectful conversations with one another. Some men seem suspicious that this woman was trying to undermine their authority, even though she was going out of her way to speak kindly and humbly and honestly. More than once, her kindness was perceived as a come on. And more than once, her humility was perceived as stupidity. So men would either leave the conversation abruptly to avoid the temptation, or they'd talk about church and theology or anything else at a third grade level with her. The husband's experience was no different. After a conversation one night in small group, he left feeling really uneasy. He used to serve as a lay elder in his former church. And when he said that, the conversation drastically changed with the couple he was talking to. The wife of this couple began asking him very pointed questions of his view on church leadership, and it was almost like she was trying to bait him. Bait him with this assumption that eldership was just the church version of toxic masculinity. At the same time, she raised cultural concerns as if to test the man's courage. Will he hold to his convictions? Or is he just another yes man who's more concerned about his personal comfort than he is about the truth. This couple, new to the church, became more than a little concerned. And this is what they concluded. The men of this church, at least some of them, viewed the women as usurpers, seductresses, and childlike. The women of the church, at least some of them, viewed men as domineering, abusive, and cowardly. Something about the way that the men and women related to one another was terribly wrong. Now, I wish I could say this is all fictional. This is not all fictional. This is really happening in real churches in our day. Something that the way, in the way that men and women relate to one another in the church is terribly wrong. Now, to be clear, like, I'm not preaching this morning with a huge burden to, like, correct our church. I'm, I'm truly not. I really think that this church is growing, has grown, will continue to grow, and I really do believe that we have very healthy relationships with men and women in this church. So don't hear this message, this sermon today, as, like, this huge correction. But can't we all agree? Like, we're not immune to the problems here, right? And, and we're not perfect, like, we need, to, we need to grow as a church. So the question I'm trying to ask myself is, how can we fo- foster the opposite of that story? 
How can our interactions be marked more and more by trust rather than this guarded suspiciousness? How can we trade these labels of usurper and seductress, childlike, dominator, abuser, coward? How can we trade those for ally, friend, sister, brother, co-laborer, partners in the gospel? How can our homes and our church present a compelling way that God has called men and women to relate to one another? That's what I want us to think about together this morning. And I want to I pray now because we need God's help. Okay? So Lord, it is so good for us to express our need before you. It's good for us. And so we, we ask for your help. We humble ourselves before you and ask for help. And we're confident, because your word so clearly teaches this, that when we humble ourselves, you're eager to give grace to the humble. And so we humbly ask for help right now in Jesus' name. Amen. Can I ditch this or do I still need... All right, good. Because that's, yeah, that's not working for me. All right. I'm a talker with my hands, so I got to get loose here. Okay. When it comes to issues of manhood and womanhood, I think that the church, big C church, not just our church, the church in general is very oftentimes confused. We neglect or we misapply or we endlessly argue about what we can and can't, should and shouldn't do as men and women. At other times, we just live reactively. Right? We're just living out of a response, usually to something negative we've seen or experienced. Sometimes it can just be same old, same old, like empty traditionalism. We just, this is what we do because this is the church, this is what the church has always done. None of those things are compelling. None of those things I just mentioned are compelling. And I believe what God's word calls us to is a compelling complementarianism. A compelling complementarianism. Not one that's blind or ignorant to the problems that have occurred or can occur, but also one that doesn't shy away from the beauty of what God has designed for men and women to enjoy. So if you're joining us as a guest this morning, we've been in the book of Genesis. We're studying through the first three chapters. And what we've seen again and again is just the brilliance of God in these opening verses. Like he's so good. He's so generous, he's so gracious, and he really has set up the world in such a way that we would thrive, which includes relationships between men and women. So I think that's what God's word calls us to. It, it calls us to a compelling complementarianism. So how do we get that? I think we need to answer three questions. What is it? Where do we find it? How do we live it? What is it? Where do we find it? How do we live it? Complementarianism. Big fancy word. What are we talking about? What does that even mean? All right, well, first of all, sometimes it's super helpful to understand what something is by comparing to what it's not. Okay? So here's what it's not. Complementarianism is not the belief that men are superior and women inferior. Men are elite and women are subservient. Men, you're all free to pursue any opportunity you want. But women, you should get married, have lots of kids, be a stay-at-home housewife, clean toilets, completely forego a career, 
Check your brain at the door, tolerate abuse, bury your gifts, deny your personality, and quietly nod yes to everything that men say. That is not complementarianism. Complementarianism is not the God-given authority which allows men to mistreat their wives or women in general. It's not patriarchy that ignores the oppression of women in principle or in practice. It does not teach that to be a godly woman, you should just tolerate and keep your mouth shut whenever there's neglect or abuse in your home. And it's not a system designed to guard dog the church and make sure that if you're a woman, the only place you can serve around here is down in the children's ministry. That is not complementarianism. It's not egalitarianism. Egalitarianism, very simply, is the belief that men and women are equal and there are no distinct roles for men and women in the home or the church. Well, I'm not talking, I'm not arguing for egalitarianism. And it's not complementary. This will help you to see. It's complementary with an E, not an I. If something's complementary with an I, it means we're just praising and approving. Like, you look good. That's a compliment. If you have something complementary, it's on the house. It's free. I'm not talking about that. Complementary with an E means something that completes. Something that makes whole. Something that makes perfect. It's either of two parts working together to complete the whole. Harmonious counterparts. Okay, so what is it? What is complementarianism? It's the belief, this is the definition, it's the belief that God has intentionally made men and women equal yet different. Equal yet different. And by design, our equality and our differences are meant to function in a harmonious, completing, complementary way. Okay, so complementarianism, what is it? God has created men and women equal, yet different. And our equality and differences are to function in a complementary way. Now, when I was a single, I was living with some buddies. There was like four or five of us. And I don't know why, but I was like the cook. Like I, I made all the meals, mostly all the meals. And we decided one weekend to have a party or something, and for whatever reason, I got it in my head to make a cheesecake. I don't know why, but I wanted to do it. I like cheesecake, so I thought I'll just make one. So I got my springform pan. I got my ingredients. I was, I was ready. I went for it. And the night of the party, I was super stoked to put my cheesecake out. And I was like thinking, to be honest, like, this is going to have a wow factor, you know? <laughs> Single guy makes this killer cheesecake? Like, I was hoping that some girls would recognize me. This was before Vicky. Do you know when people look at you and they smile, but you know it's purely out of politeness? That was happening. Something was terribly wrong, so I had to go get a piece of cheesecake for myself. And cheesecake is supposed to be smooth and creamy and sweet. This cheesecake was dry and crumbly and chunky and sour. 
If you're a baker, you know that when you make cheesecake, you have to set out the cream cheese and let it soften before you just mix it all together. I know that now. I had all the right ingredients. I had all the right amounts. But my execution was really off. And I was missing something very obvious. Friends, the same thing can be true about our doctrine. We know what God's Word says about these things, how men and women are supposed to relate, but somehow, in the execution of those doctrines, we get stuff terribly wrong, things that should be really obvious. So at the risk of stating the obvious, let me continue describing what complementarianism is. Complementarianism is the pursuit of God's good design. Men growing in Christ-likeness, loving, leading, and serving. It's women growing in Christ-likeness, loving, participating, and supporting. And we do this together because as we do it together, we complete God's purposes in the home and in the church. Complementarians want to see men and women flourish. We reject oppression, misogyny, and sexism. And we also reject the view that all male leadership is abusive. Complementarians strongly and unequivocally condemn domestic violence and any form of spousal abuse. We report abuse to the appropriate authorities and we counsel and care for the hurting with the grace of the gospel. Complementarians don't compromise on the distinct roles that God calls men and women to occupy just to appear politically correct. Nor do we call into question the legitimacy of another Christian's faith because he or she is an egalitarian. Complementarians recognize the difference between the home, the church, and the outside world. We don't apply our complementarianism the same at all times, in all places. And complementarians hold the view that we do because we believe it's what the Bible teaches us. But at the same time, we don't expect our beliefs to be accepted or celebrated in a world that largely rejects this book. Friends, to have a compelling complementarianism, we have to understand what it is and what it's not. Complementarianism is the belief that God made men and women equal yet different. And it's in our equality and our differences that we function in a complementary way. So that's what it is. What is it? Where do we find it? That's my next point. Where do we find this? Well, you're not going to open your Bibles and find the word complementarianism. Just like you won't find the Trinity. But they're both right here in Genesis. Look at, first, Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Let's read that together. Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So here we have it. Genesis 1, God is creating man and woman in his image. They're equal. They equally reflect the image of God. And the command is to both of them. Be fruitful, multiply, subdue, rule. They're called to do all of those things together. Then in chapter 2, look at verse 18. In chapter 2, remember we talked about last week, this is a dialing in. In verse 18, it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So God sees the not goodness of man, and she brings to him literally a corresponding one. She's equal. She's like Adam, but she's different. Adam could not fulfill this command to be fruitful and to multiply if he was there with another man. That's biologically impossible. He needed someone that was like him, but different. Nor could Adam fulfill the cultural mandate to go and rule with someone that was just like him, yet not different. God brought the woman equal, but someone who would see the world in different ways than he would. Someone who would understand God differently than he would. And someone that would bring a unique perspective to Adam that he needed. C.S. Lewis once said that no person is enough to call the whole person of another into being. No one person is enough to call the whole person of another into being or action. And he wrote about this close group of friends that he had. It was Lewis, a friend Charles, and a friend Ronald. Well, later on in life, Charles died. And Lewis thought, well, at least I'll have more of Ronald. But he didn't. He actually had less of Ronald. Why? Because there was something unique about Charles that brought out something unique about Ronald. You know this in your own life. There are people in your lives that bring stuff out of you that's not normally functioning in a pronounced way. Like, I've been told that I'm a pretty serious guy. I guess I am. I have this friend, Mark, that I grew up with in Buffalo, and whenever I'm together with him, I'm like a totally goofy and like silly guy, apparently. Like Mark, there's something about Mark. He's, a, he's a six foot nine. He's a big presence wherever he goes. But like something about being around him, like we make like stupid jokes and we make stupid noises and stuff like that. And people around us think we're strange, but we're killing, we're cracking each other up. There's something about Mark that brings something unique out of Jason. You see what I'm saying? That's true in your lives too. It's good for us to be around people who are like us, but different. In fact, some really bad things happen when our community is only with people who think and act and see the world exactly like we do. We become very insular. That's not good. In the same way, marriages are most whole when husband and wives are equally participating, and through our differences, we're eliciting different, unique things from each other. Churches are most whole when men and women are equally participating, 
but are participating in different ways that complete the whole of God's purposes. You see what I'm saying? It's a beautiful and a compelling thing when you see a diverse group of people that are unified for a common goal. When there's unity in diversity, that's beautiful. That's why watching team sports can actually be really beautiful, right? When you see a lineman make a hole and the running back busts through the hole and scores a touchdown, that's a beautiful thing. In volleyball, when you have the setter set and the outside hitter hit, crushes the ball, scores the point, wins the match. It's beautiful. Point guards pass. Shooting guards drain the three to win the game. When you have different people brought onto a team because they have different strengths and different, different ways of seeing the game, when they work together in a unified way, it's beautiful. Unity amidst diversity is a beautiful thing. The problem is that it's just so hard to come by. What was meant to be beautiful here in Genesis 2 quickly turns very ugly. The, the multiplying, the, the childbearing, the co-laboring between husband and, and wife, it would turn to, to pain and to conflict. The good work that Adam was supposed to do as a gardener, that would turn into a burdensome toil. There'd be thorns and thistles. So you have this harmony in Genesis 1 that God establishes. A harmony between God and between himself and the man and the woman. A harmony between man and his wife. A harmony between the earth and this couple who would rule over it. It all fell apart. And so what the, what the Bible actually does from the very beginning is it begs us to ask a question. How? How can what is broken right here how can these relationships and all of this unity and this beauty, the beautiful unity that God has brought to, to pass through diversity, how can this be restored? How? Turn quickly to Ephesians chapter 2. Remember, we're asking the question, where do we find this? Where do we find complementarianism? In Ephesians 2, starting in verse 11, Paul is writing about the relationship in the church between Jews and Gentiles. And he describes the Gentiles as those being far from God, hostile to one another. Then look at verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you Gentiles who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made both of us one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. How can two groups of people that are very different and where there's hostility between them, how can they possibly be brought back together? Only through the gospel. Through the cross, God kills the hostility. Why? What's the hostility? There's sin. Sin in Genesis 3 is what destroys the unity now there's hostility where there is once harmony. Hostility between man and woman. Hostility between God and man. Hostility between groups of people that should be unified. Only the gospel does this. Only the gospel takes people who are equally sinful and makes them equally saints in the household of God. But notice, 
Paul does not then go on to flatten the distinctions between all of us. When you get to Ephesians 5, Paul is talking about submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So the mutual partnership and the harmony between Jews, Gentiles, men, and women, it's restored. And more to our point, Ephesians 5 is all about the marriage relationship. So Paul is saying, remember back in the garden when men were created equal but different, now in Christ, the hostility that was there because of the fall is now able to be restored. Now men and women, you're to function together in these specific ways. Not to flatten the gospel, but because God and his brilliance and his beauty has made the gospel function in such a way that as men do what God calls them to do and women call, do what God has called them to do, their differences and their equality in the gospel function in a compelling way. Where do we get this stuff? Guys, it's in the Bible. Barbie movie's out. It's getting a lot of chatter. I have not seen it yet. But I'm told, as I've read, there are no good or intelligent male figures in the Barbie movie. Kens are just accessories to Barbie. Guys, this comes from somewhere. A low view of masculinity comes from somewhere. In a recent study, 40 million people are said to have left the church in recent times. 40 million people. And 10% of the 40 million cited misogyny as the reason why they left. Like the core reason for people, men and women, walking away from the church is the abuse of power by men in the church. That's 4 million people. That's a huge number. And this is not just a church issue. The Me Too movement shows how widespread this is. It's commonplace for men to objectify women. Look at the porn industry. The porn industry continues to be one of the most lucrative industries worldwide. And who is it propelled by? Mostly men. Sometimes men are all too happy to be passive. Like, we're fine with women being in charge because what that allows us to do is kick back and get back to our fantasy football teams. This is not godly masculinity. We have to get back to our Bibles and the example of Jesus to learn what masculinity is. We don't take our masculinity cues from the world, the culture, or the Barbie movie movies. The Barbie, the Barbie movie clearly promotes feminism. Now, let me say, Equality for women, we should celebrate this. When women are being treated with respect, when they're getting the pay that their education and their experience warrants, when they flourish in jobs that maximize their gifts and their, tal their talents, Christians should celebrate that. But where feminism denigrates men, where it preaches that I don't need no man or I'm actually better off without men attitude, that goes too far. That's why I disagree with the term biblical feminism. There are aspects of feminism that we can agree with, but we don't affirm the whole system. We have to apply our Bibles to secular theories. 
Because whenever our Bibles neatly fit and function in secular theories that largely reject the Bible, something is foundationally wrong. You can't, synchronism marries two things that by their very foundation are not the same. So what ends up happening is you have to compromise one or the other. God's word will not be compromised. So whenever our biblical Christianity fits so neat and nicely into any secular theory, you can guess that something's wrong and something will go wrong. We have to find our doctrine in the Bible and we must always allow the Bible to evaluate our thinking and our practices and what we believe and how we act. God's truth alone, applied in the power of his Holy Spirit, that's what leads us to living compelling lives. So where do we find it? We find our complementarianism in the Bible. What is it? Where do we find it? Now, how do we live it? That's our third question. What is it? Where do we find it? How do we live it? Now, it would be so easy right now just to get lost in the sea of all the nitty-gritty issues. So if the CEO is a woman and I'm a man, do I have to submit to her? You want to keep your job? How should salaries be determined for men and women? Who should be the breadwinner in the family? Should more churches have female pastors? Now, it is really important to ask these questions. It is, and there are answers to these questions. But I think the church, again, big C, I think we fumble here. And I think it's because we tend to emphasize one or the other. Here's what I mean. God made us as men and women equal, but different. And when the church emphasizes equal, we fail to recognize the goodness of God that comes through men and women in unique ways. We expect too much of each other. Men and women need to be killing it at work, killing it at home, killing it in the community, killing it in marriage, killing it in church, and we run ourselves ragged. We expect too much from both of us. We place burdens on each other, and then we constantly live in this, in this competition. That's not compelling. When the church emphasizes different, we too narrowly define our roles and what ministry is. We tend to equate cultural norms with biblical truth. We get more concerned about drawing firm lines around what we can and can't do, and then we judge each other for what we're doing. And emphasizing different to the extreme is one of the reasons why in the church we've rationalized abuse and we've robbed women of the voice that they should have. Friends, that's not compelling. So what does it look like to hold the tension here? Well, I'm definitely not going to get it done in one sermon. I think we really need to be digging into our Bibles and talking about this in places like missional community and Bible studies and fight clubs when we're hanging out. How are we applying this? What are things that we're seeing? What things need to be adjusted? How can we do this better? How can we live in more compelling ways? But let me try to at least speak to two issues that I frequently hear come up in the course of this conversation. What about women pursuing careers? What about men and women being married and the women of the, the church or in society working, in the church, not in society, in the church, working outside the home? Okay, two things. 
Proverbs 31 clearly shows a woman who's diligently working outside of her home. She is. And yet, 1 Timothy and Titus tell us that women have a responsibility to manage and work in their home. So which is it? I don't think that this is an either-or answer. I don't. I think it's a both-and. I know women, my wife being one of them, who take their roles and their responsibilities as mothers very seriously. And they're doing a really good job. But I also know that they have gifts and skills that they use for the good of their families, for the church, and for the world at, at large. And I think it would be a miss if they buried those gifts. Yes, family and homes are important, but we're also part of something much bigger than just ourselves. God blesses us as families, and sometimes we can idolize the family where our main goal is just to stay together and enjoy some idyllic view of family. That's not okay. God blesses us so that we can be a blessing to others, not just so that we can stay huddled together. Now, a caveat. Vicki and I, and I'm not putting us forward as like the example here. We have not done this perfectly. But we've operated with the understanding that if her job or my job came at the cost of our family, that's not good either. There were many years where Vicki didn't work. I did. Because we were together convinced that it was my God-given responsibility to provide for my family, for our family. We decided this together, before God and in faith. This was never an issue of Vicki not being allowed to work, and it certainly wasn't an issue of her not being capable or qualified. Vicki's got game. She graduated from Drexel, and to be honest, we could be making a lot more money if we would have started a long time ago with her in the workforce. We could have, but that was not the driving issue for us. We did what we did because we were convinced before God, not because some pastor told us to do it this way. We were convinced before God that this was in my best interest and hers and our family. And we did it because it also allowed us to most effectively serve other people. It wasn't just about our family. Each couple, I can't stress this enough, this is, I think, where other churches go wrong. Each couple, you need to wrestle through this. And what might work in one period of your lives might totally change in another. Kids grow up. Kids get older. Things change. People get injured. Some men can't work physically. So you can't just force one view into all situations. We need to be thoughtful and discerning. What one, what one family does might not be what another family does. That's okay. It's okay. Second question, does the Bible, first question is, should women be pursuing work outside of the home? Second question, does the Bible really teach that only men can be pastors? I mean, come on. I think it does. I think that the Bible clearly teaches that the office of an elder is reserved for men only. Whenever the Bible refers to elders, pastors, overseers, which uses that, those terms interchangeably, it's always in the masculine form in the language, always. 
And I think that the Bible's plain teaching when it comes to leading, preaching, governing the church, exercising the authority of God's word, God has assigned that role to men alone. Not because men are better, because they're smarter, wiser, more godly, or more capable. That's not the reason. It seems to be a matter of orderliness. So in 1 Timothy chapter 2.12, when he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, that's in a context. And in context, Paul's talking about the local church. He's not talking about corporate America. He's talking about the local church. And in the corporate gathering, when the church is together and people are preaching and teaching, he calls men to do that. And then he refers to the order of creation. For the woman was made after the man. So God has set up the church to reflect the order in which he created the first man and the woman, which was good. It's a matter of orderliness. Not only that, but it is a matter of orderliness. Now, when it comes to deacon, that's the only other office in the church, official office. I believe the Bible does allow both men and women to serve. That's why we have women deacons in our church. But here's what's more important. When when we just argue over two roles, I think we miss the bigger point. The body metaphor that the same author, Paul, uses in 1 Corinthians is meant to show how crucial each part is to the whole. So there are different gifts and different roles and different offices, but that's not the main point. The main point is that one is not more important than the other because what's most important is the whole. The main point is that the whole working together in unity amidst their diversity gives glory to God because who alone can do this? Everybody's so different, and yet they're together. Everyone's so equal, yet they're so unique. And their equality and their differences, it's all working together in this beautiful way. And it's not about them, it's about him. Only God can do that. And it's beautiful. So I don't think that women should be pastors, but our ecclesiology, our doctrine of the church, it must seek and pursue the significant and meaningful involvement of women. Not to say, oh, look at how nice it is, men and women together. How nice. It's not nice. It's necessary. We as a body will not be whole and complete if the men are the only ones doing anything or the women are the only ones doing anything. It's not nice. It's necessary. And I think we're moving in the right direction. I am so thankful. It brings me so much joy to work closely with women like my wife, Vicki, and Sarah Greenslade, and Rebecca Flack, and Bethany Nesbitt, and so many other of you women that just do such a wonderful job, and it makes this church so much richer. And it gives me just as much joy to work with Anthony, and Gabe, and Matt Zahn, and so many other of you men in this church who are going for it because you love Jesus. Right? It's not about men and women, or you and me. It's about we And we are about him. We're about Jesus. All right, so what if that couple, the couple I first told you about at the start, what if they came to us? What if they came to Brandywine Grace Church? They're dry, they're weary, they're looking for a fresh start. Here's what I'd hope 
they would encounter as they got plugged in. They would encounter a group of men and women whose common goal was to honor Christ. Men and women serving in the grace he's given us and in the power of his Holy Spirit. Women and men who are content and energized and peaceful and fruitful. Women and men who are in our success and in our failures, trusting wholly in the grace of the gospel. Men who are taking diligent initiative, putting the needs of others before their own. Women who are trusting Jesus and happy to support the men in leadership, even though we all know it's imperfect leadership. Women who know that their input will be sought and valued. A church and marriages where there's mutual, brother-like and sister-like love and respect. Men and women at home and in the church positioned in ways that our God-given gifts are maximized and as a result, we're joyfully furthering the mission that God has called us to accomplish together. BGC, let's run after a compelling complementarianism. Amen? Amen. Amen.